Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for such a time as this. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? For such a time as this, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also in your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message or the word of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, we're so grateful for this passage. We notice as we read it, that key word, reconciliation, that we see over and over again. That our God is a God of reconciliation because mankind was at enmity with you. And you took the initiative. We thank you for that. You took the initiative by sending your Son... To reconcile us to yourself. To make peace through the blood of the cross. That we might know you. That we might have entrance before you. And a standing before you that comes only through faith in Christ. Lord I pray that if there is even one here today. Who does not enjoy that relationship. May they understand if they're outside of Christ, then they are estranged from you. And if they die in that condition, they will be eternally estranged from you. And so I pray today that it would be your pleasure through the preaching of the word to stir faith in them. May your Holy Spirit be at work in them to to quicken them and bring them to life. Lord, those who have experienced that reconciliation, may we understand it's our mission now to go and be agents, to be ambassadors for Christ. We thank you for this ministry that we have. May we be found faithful. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Folks, think with me a moment back to that Old Testament story of Esther. You'll recall what's gone on in the book of Esther. How Queen Vashti has been put out as the queen and the search is being made for a new queen. And we know through that whole process that Esther did not want to be a part of that. And she did not want to speak up in behalf of her people, the Jews. But you'll recall the words of her uncle Mordecai to her. How he said, Esther, you need to understand that for just such a time as this, God has appointed you. And God has placed you where you are to be an ambassador for your people. Uh, Because you need to understand if they perish, it'll be understood that you too are one of them and you will perish. And so Esther assumed that role. And we know the end of the story that through Esther's intercession that her people were saved. God had her in that place at that time to be an ambassador representing her people lest they be destroyed. Well folks, it's just as clear from this passage we've read this morning that God has placed you and me and God has placed this church in this time in this place for such a time as this. That we would be witnesses to the mass of people lest they be destroyed. 2 Corinthians 5 gives one of the clearest statements in the New Testament of what we are to do and why we are to do it. We see in this text both our ministry and the motivation for our ministry. And so the first thing I want you to notice with me this morning from verse 20 is the ministry that we have. Paul says there, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Dr. Bob Roberts is one of our older Southern Baptist evangelists. In fact, in the twilight of his life now, and he recalls uh, an event back in his little boyhood days of how he and his cousin would go to his grandmother's at the time and they would go to revival services in the evening. She had this old T-model, didn't have any headlights, and coming back at night to keep her out of the ditches, he and his cousin would stand on the front bumper and those front fender wells and they would each have a lantern and they would shine that lantern out in front of her so that she could see and keep them out of the ditches. Folks, there's a spiritual application in that for us, right? We're to shine the light of Jesus and keep people out of the ditches. Now, if I were to ask you this morning, what is the most fundamental need of man today, what would you say? Well, if we were to answer that question biblically, we would have to say that the most fundamental need of mankind today is to be reconciled to God. 
That's always been the most fundamental need of mankind since Genesis chapter 3 when Satan came to Adam and Eve in the garden and they disobeyed God and they broke the commands of God and sin and death entered into human life and the whole cosmic order. Ever since then, the main business uh, that we see in the Bible is the reconciliation of mankind. That is the activity of God in the Bible. You and I need to understand that as we read through both Testaments all through the entire Bible. That overarching picture that through all of the events regardless of what book you're in in the Bible and what type of of scenario is taking place there. The overarching scenario is that God is reconciling a lost world to himself. We could start all the way back with God providing those animal skins for Adam and Eve. And then in Genesis chapter 12, how God called Abraham to go to a place and and God was going to build a new nation through Abraham. And from there we look at God's choice of Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons who would constitute Israel. And then there's the call of Moses and the leading of the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt and into the promised land. There's the giving of the law to show man God's standards and man's utter helplessness. There was the sacrificial system that pointed to the Lord Jesus. And then with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, you have the birth of the church in the book of Acts. And the church was commissioned to go into all the world. And then the Bible ends with Jesus coming back for his bride. And so the whole of scripture has to do with reconciliation. With God redeeming a people, a remnant who will be his prized possession. And folks, that means if we're going to have a heart like God's, we need to see that the most significant and fundamental ministry that we can be about is the ministry of reconciliation. That's our ministry. God has called us to be his ambassadors. Verse 20 describes that ministry that's been given to each of us. We are ambassadors for Christ. Now we know an ambassador is basically a missionary for somebody else. He goes in the name of somebody else. He goes with the authority and power of somebody else. And he goes with the message of somebody else. And we know that's our basic task as believers. It's precisely what Jesus had in mind in the Great Commission. When he said all authority... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go ye therefore into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Folks, there's an urgency that's needed. According to U.S. News, the population of the world is increasing by somewhere around 60 to 70 million persons per year. That means every minute there's 146 new people in the world. Every hour, 8,800 people. Every day, over 210,000 new persons, whereas only uh, about 150,000 die. And so a tremendous net gain every day. But while the population is exploding, evidently the knowledge of our task as a church is not. 
I heard something some years ago that really surprised me. In society, 9 out of 10 Americans do not understand the Great Commission. 7 out of 10 have no idea what John 3.16 says. In the church, only 2 out of 10 knew the meaning of the Great Commission. Only 5 out of 10 in the church uh, could quote or make reference to John 3.16. Only 6 out of 10 in the church knew what the word gospel referred to. Folks, there's a tremendous need and highlighting that need even more is a book I started reading recently, The Great Evangelical Recession by John Dickerson. You ought to get that book. It's disturbing what's going on in the church in America. You see, we hear that about 40% of America is Christian. And so commonly that would be figures of about 128 million Americans that identify themselves as being Christian. But that's simply not true. When they dig deeper with more penetrating questions, it becomes clear that there's only about 7% of the American population that is evangelical Christian. About 22 million Americans in the United States. That's all. Four of four different pollsters, four different uh, of the most highly respected and accurate pollsters have all done this study and they have come to the very same conclusion, about 7%. You know what that means? If we were to look at the Muslim population in one Middle Eastern city, Metro Cairo, Egypt. Metro Cairo, Egypt. The, the population in that metro area, the number of Muslims there would equal all of the Christians in the United States of America. That's disturbing. Looking at it another way, if you were to take a map of the United States and put all the Christians in a certain number of states and give those states a particular color and another color for the remaining states made up of unbelievers, what would that map look like? Well, sadly, you could put all the Christians in one state that now currently has about 22 million residents. That state would be New York. You mentioned New York earlier. New York State, you could put all the Christians in New York State and give New York a particular color and all the other 49 states give them a different color representing unbelievers and one state, the state of New York, would be the Christian population in the United States of America. Folks, that's the situation now. And that's why almost on every level in the culture, the, the cultural war that is, that is happening in society today, the Christian voice is losing and rapidly becoming more and more ridiculed and silent. And they say in this book too that when the, when the oldest two generations that we have now die off, you see the oldest two generations that we have now are the generations who are most tenaciously holding to traditional Christian values. When the oldest two generations now die off in the next decade or so that the situation is going to rapidly fall off the cliff even 
worse. Folks, it's clear. It's too clear, in fact, that we have oftentimes been overly concerned with only the business of the church and not the mission of the church. Somebody once gave the analogy of the modern day church to a group of farmers who never farmed. They would meet down at Farmer Joe's barn and and they would look at all the latest catalogs of the farming equipment. The farmers who had bought that equipment, they would bring it and they would look over it and, and, and oogle and just, just fascinated by all the new farming equipment. And they would get out all their machinery and they would oil it and lube it and change the filters and they would sharpen all the tools and they would go home. They'd come back the next week and they would hear more again about the latest farming techniques and they would just, they were just in awe of all the new equipment that they would bring. And they would go home again. And none of them ever put a plow in the soil. That's pretty much what's going on in the church today. We meet together for meetings and, and so forth. And, and, and yet the desperate need of the church today is to understand that we are ambassadors for Christ. That we need to get out there and we need to share the gospel. We need to be about the mission of the church while it is still day. Jesus said the fields are white unto harvest. Folks, when you understand what he's saying there, that it, the situation is even worse. When the fields are white under harvest, when the grain takes on that kind of a appearance, white, it, it means that, it, that the, the grain is bending over. It's about to be lost if the harvesters don't get out there and get the grain in. Immediately, all is going to be lost. The fields are white under harvest. We're ambassadors for Christ. That's the ministry that we have. Secondly, I want you to see with me the motivation for our ministry. And the first motivation that he gives here is in verse 10. Look at what he says there. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The coming of the Lord. Now folks, you'll recall from last week when we talked about the coming of the Lord, there was one primary thought that Paul immediately thought of. And that goes all the way back to verse 1. Where he had this beautiful assurance, this great assurance, blessed assurance in his life that if this earthly tent collapses, we have a building from God. That gave Paul a blessed assurance. But then another uh, thought struck him and had an impact on his life. He realized that when his earthly tent collapsed, that there was something else that was going to take place. He realized that he was going to stand before the Bema seat of Christ. Now the Bema seat was that judgment platform in the ancient Greco-Roman cities. You see, in their Olympic games, the judges and, and the emperors would sit up on the beam of seat and, and they would have those wreaths and the, and the winners of the game, the, the, the crown, of, the, the, the wreath crown. They would, they would call the winner up and they would congratulate him for winning in his particular event and, and there would be applause all over and they would reward him with that crown. 
The Bema seat was also the public square where the judges would sit and people would come before like in our courts today and they would argue their cases or defend themselves, represent themselves or have somebody representing them and judgments would be handed down by a judge whether or not the person was innocent or guilty and would go away to some type of imprisonment. The Bema seat. Well... That wasn't the particular Bema seat that Paul had in mind, but he used that Bema seat as an analogy that one day when we die, we're going to go before the Bema seat that really matters, the Bema seat of Christ. And we're going to be judged. As I said last week, for the Christian, there's no fear of condemnation. Romans 8 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that our work will be judged. Some of it would be wood, hay, and stubble and just be burned up. We will have, have wasted a portion of our lives. And Paul says, We don't want to live that way. We want our lives to count for Christ. We want the work of our life to be like gold and silver and precious stones. And so the coming of the Lord motivated Paul to look at his own life differently. And it it caused him to evaluate his life. You know folks, too often we're concerned with just what other people think about us. There's an old fable about this. An elderly man who was traveling with the boy and a, and a donkey. And as they walked through a village, the man was leading the donkey and the boy was walking behind. And the townspeople said that the old man was a fool for not riding. And so to please the crowd, he climbed up on the animal's back. When they came to the next town, the people there said the, the old man was cruel to let the little boy have to walk behind while he enjoyed the ride. And so to please them, he got off and he put the boy on the animal's back. Well, in the third village, people accused the child being lazy for making the old man walk. And the suggestion was made that they both ride. Well, in the fourth village, the people were furious at the cruelty to the animal of two people riding on its back. And so the frustrated old man was last seen carrying the donkey on his back. (laughs) So many people live to try to please other men. Paul said, I don't live to uh, please other men, but please God. He told the Corinthians, he said, it is a small thing that you judge me. I don't even judge myself. In other words, I don't live to please you. It was the judgment of God that motivated Paul. Paul also thought about another thought. If, if the believer, the Christian man's got to stand before the beam of seat of Christ and give an account of his life one day, what's going to happen to the lost man? There won't be any hope for him. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If it is a fearful thing for believers to fall into the hands of the living God, can you imagine how much more fearful it is for unbelievers to fall into the hands of the living God? Revelation 20 points out unbelievers will stand before that great white throne judgment and the books will be opened. And the Bible says if a person's name is not found written in the book of life, he'll be cast. To the lake of fire. Paul said to think about that. To think about the fear of the Lord. The terror of the Lord. 
We make it our ambition to try to persuade men we're about this ministry that we have of being ambassadors for Christ and begging with people and pleading with people be reconciled to God. Because there's the coming of the Lord. We've all got that appointment. Well, a second thing that motivated Paul to be an ambassador was the compassion of Christ. Look at what he said in verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us or controls us. Remember what John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, Paul said that kind of love controls me. Paul never got over God's mercy and love in his own life. In God's grace and mercy and love, he chose the Apostle Paul to be saved and become the Apostle to the Gentiles. Paul could understand the love of Christ because he had been a recipient of that love. And he says here that that love motivated him. Listen to what he goes on in verses 15, 16 to say about that love. Well, first of all, back up to the second half of verse 14. He says, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What's he talking about there? He's talking there about Christ dying in your place on the cross. Christ took the wrath of God. 1 Peter 3.18 says the just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. And that word bring us to God, prosago. A prosago is a mediator, an introducer. Christ is our introducer. He died on the cross for your sins and my sins. He took all the wrath of God against sin that he might bring us, that he might be our mediator and our introducer into God's presence. Now, folks, that's love. And in verse 15, Paul says that kind of love ought to change us. When we understand the concept of substitution and that all of us had sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, when we come to understand what was going to face every single one of us without Jesus, if we die in that state and we face God and we hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. When we understand that Christ died so we don't have to face that kind of judgment. When we understand that love, it ought to do something to us. It ought to change us and motivate us to be an ambassador for others. Folks, we need to remember the Bible says you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Does the love of Christ compel you? What Christ has done in your life to save you, to give you new life and a meaning and purpose and assurance of heaven. Has that done anything in your life to motivate you and compel you to go and tell anybody else? Paul said the love of Christ compels me. 
A third motivation for this ministry we have is the condition of men. Look at what he says in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. There are people who judge others purely on the basis of flesh. They look at somebody's possessions. They look at their position in life. They look at their wealth. And they they tend to either envy or pity the other person. Paul says here that's not the way to judge men. The true way to judge men is not to look at their fleshly condition. But to look at their spiritual condition. Do they know Christ? Have they been reconciled to God? Folks that's all that really matters in the long run. After all, Jesus said, what's it going to profit if a man gains the whole world and loses his very own soul? And you judge according to the flesh and that can be so deceiving. You can ride through one one of the city's richest neighborhoods and maybe you see a man there in his mansion and he's out in the driveway and he's polishing his his Ferrari. And you conclude, man, that guy's got to be well off. May not be well off at all. He may be empty. His marriage might be on the rocks. His kids might be in rebellion. His heart may be empty and and meaningless. And if he dies in that condition, there's no hope for him whatsoever. So Paul says what we've learned to do in life is not judge men according to the flesh. He said we once judged Even Jesus that way. Paul as a rabbi along with the other Jews. When they they looked at Jesus, what did they say of Jesus? Hmm. Is this man not the son of Mary and Joseph? And many of the Jews took offense at him. Bible says he came to his own and his own received him not. They failed to see who Jesus really was. And Paul had judged Christ this way. And because he judged Christ that way, he was a persecutor of the church. But on the road to Damascus, the risen Lord appeared to him. And he saw that Jesus was more than just a carpenter. He was more than just a mere man while being fully man. He was also fully God. He was the son of the living God. Judging Jesus just purely on on the basis of the flesh alone was the biggest mistake Paul had ever made. Judging men by the flesh is the worst mistake you and I could ever make. We need to look deeper. Is this a person who is at peace with God? That's what matters. And when we start judging men that way, everybody we meet at work, our neighbors, everybody we meet at school, when we start wondering what, what's their spiritual condition? Do they know Christ? Are they saved? Do they have peace with God? When we start looking at people from that vantage point, it motivates us to be a witness to them, an ambassador for Christ. And then one last motivating factor Paul mentions here. It is the change Christ can make in a life. He says in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God can take a sinful man. He can forgive him and make a whole new person out of him. And again, I'm sure Paul was thinking mainly about himself. Jesus can make a vile and a blind man new. Folks, that's the heart of the gospel right there. Now I tell you what, this verse deserves a lot more time than we can give it this morning. But just think about verse 17 a second. How do I know that I'm saved? Am I saved because I was baptized? Am I saved because I joined a church? Am I saved because I filled out a commitment card? Am I even saved just because I say that I'm saved? The answer to all those questions is no. I'm not even a Christian just because I say I'm a Christian. Have I been regenerated? The Bible says I was conceived in iniquity. I was dead in trespasses and sins. I was dead to the things of God. But when a man is saved, he's changed. The dead come to life. I'm alive now to the things of God. And coming alive to the things of God means the old things have passed away. Folks, think with me about all those old things. It, it might have been immorality in your life. Might have been a foul mouth. Might have just simply been a deadness to the things of God. If you're truly saved and all those things have died and all things have become new. You are a new creation. Have you become a new creation? Have you come alive spiritually to the things of God? Has there been a time in your life that, that you knew that you became a different person? Maybe at one time things like church and Bible reading and prayer and sermons and mission trips... Did absolutely nothing for you. And then something happened. Your soul came alive. It was quickened. Your soul was awakened to the things of God. Folks, that's what salvation is. Paul says in this verse, if you're reconciled to God, that's what's happened. Why is it that some have to be begged and coddled to serve the Lord and read their Bible and be about the Lord's business? At least one thing that we need to entertain. Could it be that this is a person who's never been regenerated? Because to be regenerated means that you're new. You can't get a dead man to eat or drink or walk. But when somebody comes alive, you can't keep him from eating and drinking and walking. And that's what Christ does spiritually. Christ makes an entirely new person out of you. 
You know what people want to do today? And and I don't want to discount this because I know their motives are good. So I don't want to belittle it. But a lot of people today say, you know what we need? We just need need more government programs. Give somebody a better setting in life, better education. Give them things. Give them this or that. Again, I, I, I know they mean well by all that. But you can't change a person from the outside in. It doesn't work. But folks, the truth of the gospel is that while you can't change somebody from the outside in, they can be transformed from the inside out. And only Jesus can do that. Religion can't do that. You take a wife that grows tired of her husband's language. She grows tired of maybe his drinking She lays down the law to him that he's going to start going to church with her and the kids. He reluctantly agrees to do so. But then she becomes frustrated after two or three months. Because as soon as the church service is over, he's the same person that he's always been. She had hoped that by him going to church it would help, but it hasn't helped. What's the problem? The problem is, religion imposed from the outside never changes the heart. But if you change the heart, the life changes. And and the point Paul is making here is that this fact alone motivates us to be about God's business. Sharing the gospel. What that wife needs to do instead is to pray that God will convert her husband. And she needs to share the gospel with him. If you have a spouse or you have kids or a neighbor who though they go to church, they don't act like Christians. What's a safe assumption to make in many of those cases? A safe assumption, at least an assumption you've got to entertain. A safe assumption is they, they may not be believers at all. Again, folks, you're not a believer just because you say you are. And so if somebody's not a believer, if they're not a Christian, what's the solution? Do you want to impose more religion on them or more religious exercises on them? No, that won't work. It won't change them. But as you pray for them to come to know Jesus and they come to know Jesus, He changes them. He makes dead people come to life. And if you've ever been a part of God doing this in somebody's life, it doesn't matter if you're the one sowing the seed or watering the seed. It's God who gives the increase. And you stand back and you're amazed at what God is able to do in people's lives. I've had teachers tell me this. Pastor, I was teaching the lesson, teaching the lesson, teaching the lesson. That little fella could have cared less. He ignored me. But one day the light started coming on. And and I knew what was going on in his heart. And it was just a mere matter of months after that he got saved. Paul says, what a blessing. What a motivation. What a miracle. Folks, if anything ought to encourage us, that ought to encourage us and motivate us. That right there. But how in the world is somebody going to know this unless we go? And that's why in verse 18 he says God has given to us 
the ministry of reconciliation. And then not only the ministry of reconciliation, but he says down in verse 19, he's given us the message or the word of reconciliation. What's he talking about here? He's talking about a real flesh and blood person. You go to visit somebody. You minister to them. You care about them. You love them in the name of Jesus. And as you're loving them in the name of Jesus, you're praying for them and you're sharing the gospel with them. And over time, you trust this can take root. They're going to be saved. God sent His Son to reconcile us. And now His Son sends us out that we can be about the ministry of reconciliation and the word of reconciliation. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 10. How are they going to know unless somebody tells them? And how is somebody going to tell them unless that person has been sent with the message? And he says in Romans 10, that's what God has done. John MacArthur writes about a situation. A tragedy that happened some years ago. A Kansas magazine carried a special article on a family. It was a family who lived right in the middle of those vast wheat fields out in, out in Kansas. And their three-year-old son had wandered away from home and out into those fields that seemed to go all the way to the horizon. Because the wheat, the grains of wheat, the stalks were over his head, he got lost. Well, the first picture was of a mother, concerned, worried mother sitting on a porch Weeping and obviously concerned about where her little boy was. The second picture was of all the people in that community that had come together at that house. And they joined hands together. And it looked like the line of people joined hands was over a mile long. And they started just taking one step at a time. Hands joined together. A long chain of people Going through that, those wheat fields. Just taking like a mile swash at a time. Searching that. Looking for that little boy. The third picture was of that daddy holding that dead little boy in his arms back on his front porch. And he was weeping and looking up to heaven. And the caption underneath said, oh God, if we had only joined hands sooner Paul is saying here we've got to join hands for such a time as this to be ambassadors for Christ would you pray with me And Lord indeed may we be about your business that very thing that very thing being ambassadors for Christ Because, Lord, the the condition of mankind is that men are lost. They're spiritually lost and condemned. Most of the men we meet on the streets every day of our lives, they do not know Jesus. They do not have the blessed assurance of eternal life. Lord, it doesn't matter if we're in America or if we're in South Africa. That's the condition Of mankind. Lord while it is day. 
May we be about your business. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This morning, do you need to commit your life to the Great Commission? Is your life in some way wrapped up in the Great Commission? It's supposed to be. If you name the name of Jesus Christ in some way, your life is supposed to be wrapped up in the Great Commission. Maybe there's somebody right now that God brings to your mind that you need to begin praying for them for that veil to be lifted off of their eyes. And you need to go to them and share the good news of Jesus with them. Or maybe you're that one here this morning. Say, you know what, I, I, I'm religious on the outside. I joined the church, I was baptized, I, I filled out a commitment card, I even prayed the prayer. But pastor, I'm not aware of the fact that really God ever changed my heart. I can't really ever say that I became a new creation in Christ. I'm religious, but I'm lost. God, I want you to convert my soul. I want to be born again. I want to be saved. If that's your condition, ask God to do that. In your heart today. When God changes your heart. Makes you a new creation in Christ. You'll know it. You'll know it. He changes you from the inside out. The dead come to life.